Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, hear now the word of our God. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Every year, until this year, we sang Psalm 22 at Good Friday. Psalm 22, at least the first half, is the perfect Good Friday psalm. All four Gospels quote or allude to Psalm 22 when talking about the cross. So why use Psalm 22 for Easter Sunday? 
Well, when we sing Psalm 22 on Good Friday, we always stop in the middle. Because when you're singing on Good Friday, the latter part of the psalm doesn't fit for Good Friday. Where does it fit? Yeah, today, Easter Sunday. Now, to understand why this is going on, just think back to what we've seen over the last couple weeks. Because Psalms 20 through 24 are woven together in what they're doing. And so if you want to see, understand what's going on here in Psalm 22, we need to remember what we saw in Psalms 20 and 21. Because we're seeing in these songs how the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, is connected to the kingdom of God and what God is doing in his kingdom. We've been seeing this theme throughout Book 1 of the Psalter. It's right there in Psalms 1 and 2. And then we saw it in Psalm 8 and Psalms 18 and 19. And so what I've been suggesting is it's actually the dominant paradigm for this whole Book 1. And so if you just look back at Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Okay, so this is where now the Lord's anointed will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my cry? Because I know that the Lord saves his anointed. So what's going on now? David says, the Lord saves his anointed. Psalm 20 begins with all Israel asking God to protect the king. God save the king. And when God saves the king, then God's people will be saved. And then we turn to Psalm 21, and again David says, The king rejoices in the Lord, the king trusts in the Lord, and through the salvation of the Lord, the king is made blessed forever. My God, my God, oh why have you forsaken me? Wait a second, How do, what on earth is going on? This is not God saving the king. This is not the king being blessed forever. What's going on at the beginning of Psalm 22? In Psalm 21, in verses 8 through 12, the appearing of the king resembles the appearing of the Lord himself, bringing judgment against his enemies. But I, I'm not a man, I'm a worm. This is Psalms 20 and 21 turned upside down. If kingship belongs to the Lord then who is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed? And we see this in Psalm 22. David referring to his his own passing through suffering and affliction. And yet, as we'll see as we go, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The Lord has heard when he cried to him. And so the families of the nations shall worship before the Lord because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The Lord is king. So where does the Messiah fit in? This is why the incarnation is so important. It's only when God himself comes in our flesh, when the Lord who is king becomes the son of David who is king, that salvation comes. And actually, as you then watch where we'll go in Psalms 23 and 24, the Lord is the shepherd of the shepherd king. And the Lord himself is the king of glory. So there are these two psalms in 20 and 21 about the Messiah as king who trusts in the Lord. 
And the two psalms after Psalm 22 are the, the, about how the Lord is the king in whom Messiah trusts. And the song in the middle, Psalm 22, connects all these themes. Because think about what it meant for Jesus when Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, oh, why have you forsaken me? We often think of that simply in terms of, oh, God had forsaken him. Yes. But why did Jesus take Psalm 22 on his lips? Why did he use those words? Because he's confessing that he is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the one who brings God and man together. He is the one who has come to do what Psalm 22 says needs to happen. That's me. I am here to take upon myself the wrath and curse of God so that I might bring you to the end of Psalm 22. Because you are my God, my God. Jesus is not saying, God's not my God anymore. No, he's saying, no, you are my God. And I am the one who is going to bring this to completion in three days. Our New Testament lesson comes from John chapter 20. John had echoed Psalm 22 several times in chapter 19 as he spoke of the crucifixion of the Christ. Listen for echoes of Psalm 22 as he tells of the resurrection. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says, Go to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers, was what Psalm 22 had said. Thomas says that he won't believe unless he sees the marks of Psalm 22 on Jesus. They have pierced my hands and feet. And the way the chapter ends is the conclusion of Psalm 22. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. I love what John does here. Go to my brothers. All through John's Gospel, Jesus highlights his unique relationship to the Father. Now, in the other Gospels, he'll tell the disciples, he'll teach them how to pray, pray our Father. So, yes, Jesus did that. But John wants to make a point here. So he doesn't mention that part. All through John's Gospel, Jesus focuses on his unique relationship to the Father. When Jesus speaks of the Father throughout John's Gospel, it's always the Father or my Father. Only here does Jesus say. Only now, after the resurrection. Only after he has hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only now does he say, I am going to my God and your God. To my Father and your Father. Only now does he say, Go to my brothers. Because at the cross... When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is claiming to be the innocent suffering servant. He is claiming to be the Messiah of Psalm 22. Why did God forsake Jesus? 
Why was he abandoned at the cross? Because it is only if his beloved son, if the righteous king is the one who becomes the innocent suffering servant, only then can Jesus stand in the midst of his brethren. You see, we don't like, we don't like to hear about how the innocent suffer. When we heard about the Nashville shooting, we were appalled and horrified because here are people who didn't deserve this getting gunned down. What's going on? But if the righteous cannot suffer, then that means that Jesus couldn't suffer because he was righteous. He was innocent. We don't like the fact that the innocent suffer. Good. You shouldn't like it. It's not a good thing. But it's only because of the suffering of the innocent suffering servant that salvation can come to the earth. Because if God is going to treat sin as it deserves every time, the wages of sin is death. So we're all doomed. If we lived in a world where everyone got exactly what they deserved, there would be no hope. There would be no Easter morning. It's only if the innocent suffering servant goes to the cross and bears the wrath and curse of God for us that we can be saved. The title of Psalm 22 shows us three things. It says, to the choir master, reminding us that this is to be sung in worship. Actually, when Jesus says, My God, my God, oh, why have you forsaken me? He is making a claim to be that singular innocent suffering servant. And yet remember that this song was titled to the choir master because all Israel was to sing it in and with David. All of you are to sing this in and with Jesus. Remember where we ended Good Friday with Psalm 88. There are days in the Christian life that are like that. There are days in the Christian life where at the end of the day, you are very much in the middle of the grave. You are very much in the middle of that affliction and suffering and darkness. Because you have been joined to Christ. And now he calls you to pass through that affliction and suffering to glory just as he did. The second thing we see in the title is according to the doe of the dawn. Maybe that's the the tune, who knows. But Jerome, an early Christian commentator, rightly points out that the dawn is what happens on the third day. The dawn is what happens on Easter Sunday. The dawn is what happens when the light shone in the darkness. And our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and triumphed over all our enemies. And the psalm of David reminds us that the singer of the psalm is the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. And Israel sings this song in David just as we sing this song in Christ. Now the the first movement of Psalm 22 moves back and forth between the problems faced by the psalmist and his cry to the Lord for help. Psalm 22 is inviting us into the song. We are called to enter into the prayer of Jesus that just as we share in his affliction and suffering, we might also share in his resurrection glory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I will pour out my soul in anguish before my God. I will cry out in agony to my God. Yes, there is pain and anguish in this voice. But there is also faith. Why have you forsaken me? How is that a call of faith? Well, if if you have utterly and finally and totally forsaken me, what's the point of saying it? If God no longer hears you, then why are you crying out, My God, my God? For Jesus, as for us, the reason why we sing this song is because He is my God. How do I know He is my God? Because Jesus told you, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so now you get to sing this song with Jesus because all of your Good Fridays, <laughs> what, a, what a lovely name, all of your Good Fridays, do you think about your suffering as Good Fridays? All of your Good Fridays come to their fulfillment in this glorious Passover supper, this Pesca, this glorious day. Why have you forsaken me? Because I know that you will deal with this someday. So why is it happening now? I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The stress is mounting. The insomnia is getting worse. God is silent and I am worn out and exhausted. Ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. How do you respond when God is silent? The psalmist teaches us by modeling it for us and inviting us to inhabit his prayer. Jesus invites you into his prayer because the best place to start is by remembering our story, remembering our fathers and the story that we are part of. Verse 3, Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Our prayers quickly slip into a a me mentality. We tend to focus on how we... It's all about ourselves and, and my own situation. But we need to remember that we are part of a wider and deeper story. Yes, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is my God. But my God is the Holy One enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in Him, and we are connected to them and their story. Our fathers trusted in you. Abraham believed your promises, and you fulfilled what you said to Abraham. When Israel was in Egypt, the Lord called Moses to lead his people out from under the yoke of Pharaoh. Throughout the period of the judges, when the people of Israel were oppressed by their enemies, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. And as we sing Psalm 22, we keep adding to that that story. In the second century, there was a faithful Christian bishop named Polycarp, who was burned at the stake for his faith. The church wrote a letter to explain what happened. And they wrote this. They said, He was not only a famous teacher, but also a notable martyr, whose martyrdom all desire to imitate, for it followed the gospel of Christ. 
By his endurance, he overcame the unrighteous ruler and thus gained the crown of immortality. And he is glorifying God and the Almighty Father, rejoicing with the apostles and all the righteous. And he is blessing our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls and governor of our bodies and the shepherd of the Catholic Church throughout the world. Martyrdom? Yeah. Is that the way we think? Through his being burned at the stake, he triumphed. And now the story of God's faithfulness continues to be proclaimed even more boldly and gloriously than before. Is that the way we talk about martyrdom today? Or do we tend to grumble and complain about martyrdom? If martyrdom is actually a good thing, if martyrdom is how we conform to the likeness of Christ, then we should rejoice when we have opportunity to suffer for our faith. We know that God has been faithful in the past. And yet there's a sense in which that makes it worse for the present. Because the stories I have heard of God's faithfulness in the past don't necessarily jive with what I'm going through right now. Verse 6. Great stuff for my fathers, our fathers, but I am a worm and not a man. Now, this is not a problem with low self-esteem. When he says, I am a worm and not a man, it's, this is talking about, this is where I am in my situation. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. He, let, you know, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Scorn and derision have dehumanized me. It's not easy to kill another human being. The only way that you can convince yourself to kill another human being is to see them as less than human. If you can, if you can make another person seem like less than human, it's a lot easier. There's, there's a, a, you know, think about all the propaganda that, w- that went out throughout various wars in order to basically see, see the other as being less than human. They mock me. They heap scorn and derision on my head. They also remember the stories of God's past faithfulness and they see my present and they mock. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. That was then used against Jesus as he hung on the cross. And it's what they continue to say to us. But what did Jesus say in response? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Or in the words of verses 9 through 11, yet You, O God, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Remembering God's faithfulness to our fathers is important, but it's equally important to remember our history. My history. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't leave me here in the midst of trouble. Don't abandon me to my foes, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Have you ever been there? Trouble is near and there is none to help. I've had some dark moments, but I'm not sure I'd ever say I've ever been to the point where there was none. When I stood alone at night in a hospital waiting room with a tiny baby at my side, wondering if I would ever see my wife again. 
there came three friends walking through the door. I didn't know anybody had told them, but here they were. Two skilled physicians were operating on my wife, and a loving congregation did everything they could to help. I wasn't alone. None to help. But for Jesus, as he carried his cross to Golgotha, trouble was very near, and his friends had abandoned him. His, his people, the people of Israel, were calling out, Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar! <laughs> there was none to help. And so the psalmist returns to the depths of his problem. In verses 12 to 18, use a rich variety of images to describe the problems. Bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their wide, wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, just imagine, if you will, a bull with a mouth like a lion. A bull is about five times the size of a lion. So, we just got a whole lot worse. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I have no solidity. I am melting like wax. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. This is now the opposite image. Instead of being poured out like water, I have no water. I'm just, I've been disintegrated. All my water is over there. All my solids are over here. And now I'm just, I'm just, I'm disintegrating. I got nothing. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. I'm parched and thirsty. <laughs> yeah, I thirst. And the rapid fire imagery shifts in verse 16 to a, a pack of ravenous dogs surrounding me, stripping off my flesh so that I can see and, and count my bones. How can you count your bones? It's only if your flesh is being torn off your body so you can actually see your own bones. I'm a spectacle for them. They delight in my agony. And you see this. This is, again, the horrors of what happens when we dehumanize. Because people who would normally find such a scene repulsive and horrific become so drawn into the moment that they participate and celebrate the torture and death of another. But you, O oh Lord. But you, O oh Lord. Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. This is why we've had all those psalms of refuge in the first part of book one. God is my refuge. He is my help. He is my fortress. And this is why David and now Jesus come back to this theme over and over again. Oh, you, my help. Oh, you, the one who does for me what I could not possibly do for myself. Deliver me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. Suddenly we switch from the plea, begging God to do something, to the past tense. God has done it. He has answered me. Uh, the tone is a sudden and shocking contrast. But isn't that entirely in keeping with Israel's experience of God? For that matter, our experience of God. Just when you think there is no hope, God does something entirely unexpected. But then again, 
if we're dealing with God, why should we expect that it would be otherwise? And the resurrection of Jesus is perhaps the most obvious example. But in case you want to see proof that the Bible tells us that we should import our stories into the Psalms, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.17. Because now Paul is talking about his own experience of standing before magistrates. And he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, Paul doesn't say that he's quoting a Bible passage here. But there's only two verses in the Bible that speak of being rescued from the mouth of lions. There's Daniel 6 and Psalm 22. And... Psalm 22 immediately goes on to talk about how this rescue will enable the singer to go on and praise the Lord to the nations. This is precisely what Paul's talking about. Because, remember, remember what, what we saw in Psalm 20. When is the day of trouble for Jesus? Okay, the cross, obviously. But what did Jesus say to that same Paul when he was on the road to Damascus? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Every time you persecute my people, you are persecuting me, Jesus says. And that's why Paul, when he's now facing a day of trouble himself, he says, ah, yes, Jesus' experience on the cross, Jesus' experience of being delivered, that is now me in Jesus. Because Psalm 22 is true for Jesus, therefore it is also true for us. Because if we have been united to Jesus in a death like his, we might also be united to him in his resurrection glory. These two things go together. But of course it's worth noting that if you want this for yourself, then you also have to get to the end of the psalm. Because the point of your suffering is so that the kingdom of Christ may be proclaimed. Verse 22 speaks of what happens when God delivers his son. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is what the resurrection the narratives are all about. Go to my brothers and tell them. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. The pronouns suddenly change. The you now becomes the congregation. He is now God. Up until now, they were those who tormented and mocked me. Now, they are those who turn to the Lord. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Now, notice how these themes weave together. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Hebrews 2 will use this. God has heard him when he cried to him. Hebrews 5. The afflicted will then eat and be satisfied. Jesus refers to his, own, his flesh as the true bread that came down from heaven in John 6. And all the families of the nations shall worship God because of him. Philippians 2 will draw on this. This is the story of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because it is true for him, it is also true for us who are in him. So if you want God to deliver you from your troubles, just so that you can sort of sit around and do your own thing, Don't expect much response. 
Do you want God to deliver you from your troubles? Do you? What will you do if he does deliver you? In the evening service, we just concluded the book of Leviticus, which ends with the theme of vows and the vow offerings. And what will you do if he delivers you? The end of Psalm 22 talks about my vows I will perform before those who fear him. What will you do if God delivers you? Who will you tell? How will you give praise to God? What will you accomplish because you have been delivered? Is it just going to be because I want to go on and do my own thing? Well, then you're just you're seeking first your own kingdom and your own righteousness and that's it. But will you seek to proclaim the faithfulness of God for his great deliverance? Our, our confession of faith says that vows are to be made voluntarily, out of faith, and conscience of duty, in a in way of thankfulness for mercy received, or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties, or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. It's entirely appropriate to say, if you, O Lord, will deliver me from this enemy, name your trouble, then I will proclaim your great victory in the great congregation. And the vows, vows, it's, vows are costly. It re- requires you to actually put something into practice. I haven't taken many vows in my life, but when I was single, after many failed relationships, I vowed not to pursue a romantic relationship with a woman until those who knew me best approved of the relationship. I wanted to find a wife, and I realized that I needed the wisdom of others. So I bound myself uh, not to a, a necessary duty. Uh, scripture never requires that your friends approve of your prospective wife, but to something that I knew that I needed. And in fulfillment of that vow, I continue from time to time to repeat the story, as I do today, to bear witness to God's faithfulness to all generations. When the psalmist says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him, he's referring to the practice of bringing the vow offering. Because in the Old Testament, when a person took a vow before God, it's like, if you give me victory in battle, I will offer a hundred bulls. And then if God did as the person asked, the person would bring a hundred bulls as a vow offering. Now, Here's the part that we don't often think about because this we're like vow offering, whatever. What does that have to do with us? Every Sunday it has something to do with you. What is the Lord's Supper? It's Jesus' vow offering. Because Jesus' vow was that if the Father rescued him, then he would praise him in the midst of the congregation. That his own body and blood would become the vow offering, the sacrificial meal for all nations. And that's why the theme of eating becomes so important at the end of Psalm 22, in verses 26 and 29, and particularly the theme of eating and worshiping. And David even says that this applies to us Gentiles. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The result of what God does for the son of David is that all the families of the nations shall worship before you. When God brings his suffering servant to glory, then all the ends of the earth, even here in the wilds of northern Indiana, turn to the Lord and worship him. 
because God had promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through his seed. And in Jesus, this becomes literally true. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You are called to enter Jesus' prayer. You are the posterity. You are the people who are yet unborn when the psalm was written. The ones to whom Jesus declares the faithfulness of God. And as you see the continued faithfulness of God in this generation, you bear witness. And now you continue to to proclaim this to a generation yet unborn. I know, a few of them are coming. But (laughs) as we continue to proclaim God's faithfulness. So let's ask him to continue to do what he's promised. Oh Lord our God, have mercy. Because you have said that you will continue to send forth your gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful and fruitful in our bearing witness to Jesus. That we might that we might perform our vows and do the things that you have called us to do in walking before you and seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us and, and strengthen us, we pray, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.